Welcome to the Being Human UT podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UT podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Welcome to the Being Human UT podcast. Um, I'm Randy Jasmine with my co-host Jim Hendigas, and we're back again talking to you about the intersection of humanities and technology. We're very happy today to be joined by um, uh, uh, a guest who has spoken here on the Utah Tech campus a couple of times in the last couple of months. His name is Sylvester Johnson, and he is the director of the Center for Humanities at Virginia Tech University. He's also an associate provost for public interest humanities, and he really is someone who has a lot to say about the very theme and topic that is, you know, the foundation of this podcast, the intersection of the humanities and technology. So, Sylvester, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to see you both, and uh, very grateful to be invited on. Um, Jim, I know you've got some questions that you have been formulating. Why don't you kick us off with uh, a discussion point? Well, um, thank you so much, Sylvester, for for joining us uh, this this for this podcast. Um, I really enjoyed your presentation, and I, I mean, I thought it was very, I mean, obviously forward thinking. This idea that um, we are looking, we're moving into a fourth um, industrial res- revolution, and um, uh, so what, uh, when you talked about maybe the, the more dire aspects in the beginning, um, then you transitioned, uh, into what we're doing and even specifically what some of the things that Utah tech, um, is doing for the, the new workforce. Um, and I, there were just a couple questions that I had, um, in, in thinking about your presentation. Uh, um, one of them was this concept of, um, inequality, um, and I mean, I know inequality and inequity are not the same thing, but I might be conflating them at times. <laughs> um, but you, you talk about in, in an, um, especially wealth and this issue of inequity of wealth. Um, and then later on, you talk about how we are transitioning in higher education to uh, students into private industry. And I know a lot of people sort of blame private industry as a possible cause of, of wealth inequity. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how would you address those concerns where people might think, well, you know, private industry is actually a possible problem uh, of, of, of all that wealth um, disparity? Yeah, thanks so much for that question and for your, your nice summary of uh, the talks. It was a great pleasure to be able to be out at Utah Tech and spend some time with you and the uh, community there uh, for a couple of occasions now and look forward to to doing so again in the future. So yeah, so the the issue of inequality, of course, is what I described uh, as many others have observed for a long time as as the grandest of grand challenges, perhaps, that it is, it's certainly on the very short list of some of the most uh, difficult challenges that we have to face. And that's up there along with things like the environmental uh, integrity of our world and uh, the different challenges that we have for ecological sustainability. And then there are other big challenges as well. You think about all of the shifts that are happening in macroeconomics globally. Uh, but certainly uh, to your to your question, I like to think about this 
in a very precise, more practical way if you think about our students. Why do they come to be part of higher education? Why do they pursue that? And there are many reasons. Uh, I think that if you sit down and talk with, with any number of our undergraduates or our graduate students, and you ask them what they are most anxious about over the next one, two, three, four years, overwhelmingly you will hear, especially if you're talking to a junior or senior undergraduate, they will talk about their concern that they have for being able to, to get a job, to participate in the economy. Uh, they're about one third of our students on university campuses in the United States are actually experiencing food insecurity and housing insecurity. That's one third, that's the average. That's the average. And I know that if if you ask a lot of our faculty and, and our staff to think of in their mind to share with you their imagination of the average student, <laughs> that imagination probably goes something like holding a couple of iPhones that cost 1500 bucks each and driving a nice car and living with granite countertops because we didn't have granite countertops when we were students and now they have all the luxury student housing. Right? <laughs> that that idea exists among the faculty and some of that is true. There are students with iPhones and granite countertops, but the point is that uh, for, for most of the other students, they're dealing with a lot of, of insecurity, financial insecurity, and a lot of uncertainty. And of course, if you ask them who, whom they wanna be hired by, most of them don't say a university because most of our students are not aspiring to become professors or to work in a, in a public sector. Uh, they're, if you take away private companies from potential employers, you leave people very little to work with. Uh, in other words, if we think about this from those, the perspective of those whom we claim to serve most primarily at our academic institutions, those are our students. If we think about this from their perspective, uh, the last thing any student will wanna see is the disappearing of private companies because that's how most of them are gonna be able to, to do what, what we do, <laughs> what, what Sylvester Johnson does. Sylvester Johnson works for paychecks. I have an employee, he's Virginia Tech. I have health insurance. Um, I'm able to, because I have a job and I don't wonder on payday whether I'm gonna have a paycheck. It goes there automatically. It's not even a piece of paper, it's electronic. I can pay for a place to live. I go to the grocery store. I swipe my bank card. I don't even think about whether I'm going to have enough money to pay for my groceries. And I can go home and feed my family. We can eat together. And we wake up every morning not wondering whether we're going to get evicted. Uh, so I think if we start there. Mm -hmm. I think that it becomes clear that we should not treat private companies as, as enemies. Mm -hmm if we are serious about what we say that we're here to serve our students and we we say that we're preparing them for the future so i don't want to ramble a long time but i just start there that doesn't mean that there aren't problems that private companies have created there are tremendous problems that private companies have created that have created and a lot of those things are the you know you can where do we begin you could talk about the unevenness in the employment uh, the opportunities for employment. So companies have had a long mixed checkered history of, of fair access to employment. Uh, we could look, and we're gonna talk a lot about technology, I, I, I suspect, <laughs> so we could talk oh, yeah. about <laughs> uh, but, but we would be wrong and unfair to reduce companies to their problems, just as we would be wrong 
and unfair to reduce higher education institutions to their problems. Mm -hmm. uh, Utah Tech stands out because Utah Tech has tackled the affordability crisis and made learning more accessible and is also an open university, open admissions. That's not true of where I work. That's not true of most of higher ed. Most higher ed institutions create a difficult barrier to access, but it would be wrong to reduce higher ed to that and treat us as only places that make it hard for people to access because universities do a lot of good in the world. So that's where I would start. I think if, if we're willing to be fair and nuanced and, and not reduce things to their problems, we can solve the problems and still uh, elevate the value that all of these institutions, private or public, can deliver. Thank you. Yeah, and I just wanted to follow up on that question because as you were talking, I thought back to your, your talk here in November and you talked about the collaboration that can take place between um, private companies, you know, businesses and higher education institutions as far as education and credentialing and, you know, helping our students to learn in the new technological environment in which they exist because those challenges are new to all of us. So could you talk a little bit more about that idea of how that collaboration might take place? Absolutely. So one of the great things about the polytechnic universities, and I'll, you know, I was mentioning in my talk there, Utah Tech, some of the important work that Utah Tech is leading through its example and what it embodies. So polytechnic is, is not just, well, let's prepare students for an economy in which they're is a large role being played by technology and and technical skills. Technology is not just technical; it's comprehensive. There are lots of things required, uh, but it's also how do we how should institutions partner with private industry, and, and so that includes uh, lots of different sectors of the economy, and in order to or industry broadly. So that's private and public. In order to optimize how we structure the learning that we deliver, it's not just about whether our students are going to get jobs. It's also about uh, how we prepare future talent. And so there, there are incredibly important and urgent opportunities that all of our universities and colleges have to work very closely with I'm going to say industry, because that includes private companies and includes government, a public institutions, civic organizations, and companies are, are uh, for-profit and not-for-profit. There are lots of opportunities to work closely with industry to do something that I think most of our institutions are probably reluctant to do, and that is to, to change uh, not just what we teach, but how we teach. And I'll, I'm happy to say a little bit more about that, uh, because we've we've had some beginnings of, of exploring this at Virginia Tech. Uh, there's a lot of it happening at Utah Tech, and that is just really working with industry in order to, uh, to change the way we introduce students to concepts and learning. And a, and a clear example of that is studio-based learning that's project-based. And that is um, uh, attempting to solve a problem. And those problems can be shaped the students that are working on can be shaped with industry. And we can even invite industry into that studio space to help us to, to work with those students. Thank you. Well, and I, I want to explore this idea of, of comprehensive. I mean, I know um, that, you know, when, 
when we we really adopted this idea of an open, um, inclusive, comprehensive polytechnic university, you know, there there was an initial you know concern of does comprehensive really mean what you, what you mean when we, we we thought about with the university because that means that there's a value to all of the disciplines on campus and not just the ones that have their sort of time in the on the the in the limelight and and right now I mean I think the 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 industries that that do have sort of the limelight are are STEM fields and and health sciences and so you know how how do you envision at least how higher ed can sell to certain industries that do maybe privilege those fields to say, you know, we want, um, you know, comprehensive to really mean what it, what it means. Uh, and I mean, I, I guess the more direct question is how do you sell the humanities to industries that might not value them or not think of them as highly as other industries? Yeah, these are all such great questions, really, uh, and I think they're just spot on. It's some of the most fascinating, uh, really, in, in some ways, formidable challenges, but also most important opportunities in front of us. So there, there are a number of ways to do that. You know, I'll, I'll say, I'll point to three things. One, uh, we've told the wrong story about technology as a society. We, we equated it with technical. And the right story is that tech is not just technical. It is comprehensive. It's things that are cultural. Uh, it's things that are much more human-oriented and humanistic. And the clear evidence of that is that anyone who looks at the, the biggest, most difficult fights that our society is having around technology and the biggest concerns and conflicts, the, the most difficult and the most absorbing, the ones that you will read about in the headlines almost every single day, nonstop, are not about technical things. They're about the human side of technology. How do we ensure fairness? How do we create accountability? What do we do about the future of work? In other words, how do we balance automation with the need for human beings to be able to participate in the productive labor economy? Uh, in, in theory, if we could make it unnecessary for any humans to perform labor that actually results in a paycheck and a job, should we do that? Should we should we make all humans irrelevant to the productive economy? Uh, you know, so that that's not a technical question. That's a human question. And all of the things that are going on with with regulation, the the uh, U.S. White House administration just issued an executive order on uh, artificial intelligence, fairness and responsible AI in October 30th of this year. The EU had already been developing legislation that they just uh, just agreed upon just a few days ago. Uh, China has has moved very, very quickly to introduce regulation for generative AI and other AI systems. So that that question of how we regulate is, is how we manage this technology, that's that's about our policies and about the vision of society that we want. So those are those are huge needs that companies have to address and that our whole society has to address. And so what the the first order of business is that uh, we have to change the story that we tell. Tech is not just technical. We have to, one way to sell humanities, to, to elevate its value proposition, to help employers, companies, and government, for that matter, uh, to understand the need for humanistic skills and expertise in the technology frontier is to emphasize 
the connection between the biggest things that we're fighting about, which are on the human side of tech, and the greatest need for skills to, to address those problems, which is the human side of tech. If you think you can just take the math majors and say, oh, well, you know, we'll just let all the engineering majors handle the regulation, you're, you're going to just reproduce the problem that we have. And the problem is that we've not included talent across all of our areas of expertise and knowledge and disciplines. Uh, and I think as we continue to go down the path of having to operate in an environment where, where now there are legal demands and com compliance requirements uh, that are going to put pressure on companies to do certain things on the human side of tech so that they can operate, I think companies are gonna have to pay attention <laughs> to the human skill. Uh, that's just, it's either that or they're not gonna be able to, to commercialize their products and their services. And, and I think what we then have to do at our higher institutions is to say, okay, and this is why the question that you opened with is so important. How do we do this together? Uh, that is our higher institutions and, and our, our industry sector. Uh, how, do we, how do we get our students and our faculty who teach the human skills, who specialize in those higher level learning skills that concern empathy and very complex problem solving on the human side. How do we get them to help prepare that talent? Uh, we, we have to develop that because I, I think that our companies are gonna be forced, they're already being forced to address that human side with people who have expertise on the human side. And, and finally, I think we have to, to change some of what we're doing. So at, at uh, Virginia Tech, we've been developing and, and have just launched something called the Leadership Institute for Technology. As far as we can tell, it's the world's first executive program in humanities. And if there are others out there, please email me or tell me about it. I'd love to meet with people, other people who are doing this. Uh, but we've designed a, an executive level program. It's one year for mid to senior level leaders in technology to study humanities. And the response that we've gotten has been amazing. You know, we have people from four different continents who are our first group of fellows in this program who are devoting their time and their money and their energy to study humanities because what they recognize is that humanities cultivates those higher level skills of learning. And this, this was led, this is being led by Rishi Jaitley, who was, um, has been a very uh, effective leader in technology, who's also a humanities, uh, a humanities supporter and humanities expert. And he has led the creation of this institute. And, and the point of that is that when you move beyond the 18 to 22 year olds or 17 to 22 year olds, and when you open up the opportunity for people across the life spectrum to be able to study humanities, you, you actually get people who've had the time to be more reflective, who've had, who have the ability to decouple the pressure on how am I going to get a paycheck, that, to decouple that pressure from their intellectual curiosity. And most of us can do that more easily as we get older. And as we, as we create more opportunities for people who are not just 17 to 21 years old to study humanities, I think what we'll find is there are actually lots of people who would love to study humanities. 
And many of them are running these companies. You know, they're senior leaders. And I know that because we have a group of them who are in the first class of our Leadership Institute for Technology. And it's going really well. They, they really wanted to study this. They find it very gratifying. They see the value contribution innately for its own knowledge, for knowledge sake, as we love to say in academia, but also for helping them to cultivate those higher level skills that they need to be truly effective leaders. So I think if we can think across those areas of how do we imagine the, the so-called market for higher education, it needs to be open to more people. It needs to be delivered in a way that's accessible to more people. And if we think about some of the hardest problems that our society is dealing with, which are on the human side, um, and some of the practical effects, again, everybody's gonna have to address these regulatory issues. I think those things can help us to generate more ways to do what you've asked about, and that is to, to demonstrate more effectively the value of comprehensive and particularly of humanistic knowledge and expertise. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think about just human beings, and I, I've, I've thought about this a lot, that, you know, I, we like to silo our ideas because, I mean, maybe it's easy easier to digest if we're just going to focus on, you know, one priority in our mind or one focus. And I, and I see this with students where, you know, like, oh, I'm not good at math. And so I'm never going to consider anything in math or I'm not good at English. I hear that a lot um, because I teach English. But um, and then they immediately disqualify certain disciplines from their mind. And they're just, I'm just going to focus in on this. And and I, I, I just I really want to embrace this idea of hopefully comprehensive means that we're all pretty excited about all of the disciplines we might focus in on one, but Hey, like, Hey, I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more about chemistry and biology. <laughs> it's not my field, but I'm pretty excited about it. And I, you know, hopefully other people are excited about psychology and history and it, it, it becomes a, um, a larger understanding of the world as opposed to isolated, you know, experts. Yeah, when you talk about this idea of tech being comprehensive, and, and I think that's a great um, concept for us here at Utah Tech to think about because of the nature of our mission statement and this attempt to incorporate all these things. Um, when you were here in November, um, uh, the morning of your talk, I got into my car and Tom Williams was uh, introducing you. Um, for the radio segment, and he, he said, uh, my guest uh, today is a man who thinks the moment for the humanities is in front of us. Um, is, is this the kind of thing that you're talking about, that this kind of demand is going to be higher? Because you've heard a lot of people say, you know, with this automation, with things like uh, generative AI, the people who do um, some of the more technological um, jobs may be the ones who find themselves challenged a little bit more. You know, I'm thinking of not that he's an authority on the humanities, but, you know, um, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban saying, you know, we're looking for the humanities people. Those are the people who are going to be the highly desired employees of the future. Um, can you talk a little bit about your vision of the moment of the humanities being in front of us? Yeah, thanks, Franny. Appreciate that question and your your reference to Mark Cuban, I think, is really insightful because he he has made that point repeatedly and he's emphasized 
uh, what what will become important as AI, for example, plays a great role in providing a lot of the the technical work that needs to happen from everything from machines now writing code, so AI can write code. Gen generative AI, of course, has puts turbo charges on the ability of code to produce code. That doesn't mean no humans need to know any code. It means that a lot of, that you're gonna need fewer humans to code. That's, that's what that means. Humans will still be involved, but there will be fewer of them. And what, uh, what Mark Cuban has emphasized is the importance of domain expertise. So in other words, again, let's go back, and this is nothing against math majors. I love math and I love math majors. And I, I was a STEM major in undergrad. I studied chemistry. It's just me trying to, trying to, to explain the context. That's why I'm using the example of a math major, you know, who who writes some algorithm to perform some function for uh, algorithmic services in the sector of healthcare. What Mark Cuban says is, well, since the AI is going to be so much better at, at at producing a lot of that coding, doesn't mean you don't need any humans to, to code again. You still need math majors, okay? Is the point is that we need everybody else. What you really need, what you don't want is someone who's only studied uh, uh, technical disciplines in math to be in charge of designing systems for healthcare. You're, you're gonna need healthcare experts. <laughs> and those experts need to include many different kinds of people. You know, it's not just a medical doctor. It's not just someone who has a degree in nursing. It's someone who understands patient-doctor interaction. Some That person might be a psychologist. Uh, they might be a sociologist. They might be uh, an English major who is really skilled in communication and they take that and they understand how to go into an environment and optimize the ability of people to convey, convey important information. It might be someone who studied languages and they recognize that in a given healthcare system or healthcare site in a, in a hospital, for example, depending on where you are in your part of the world, maybe seven or eight languages are spoken in that place. And they understand how to prepare future talent because you, you need translators. <laughs> and I don't care what kind of AI you have. Uh, AI is great at helping us do things as long as we don't fall for the illusion that we don't need any more humans. You know, you still need humans. So that these are these are ways that I think we're seeing the the value of the of the human skills becoming more important. And Randy, I could I could say one more thing to try to answer that question. This is a little, this is a little bit uh, pithy and, and overdone, but just to make the point that as machines become better and better at doing uh, analysis and analytic insights and coding, the only thing that's going to be left for us humans is just to be human. I mean, that's, how gonna, <laughs> that's how we're going to have left. Now that, you know, that's overdone. That's sort of a joke. But the point is that I do think we're going to see a greater need for structuring leadership from humanistic expertise and a greater need for people who have those, those I'm gonna say higher level human skills that my colleague Rishi Jaitley has embedded into this Leadership Institute for Technology. Those skills are gonna become more important. Uh, as, as we create greater ability to work across teams that are more complex, multi-sided, because you can, you know, you, the fact we're having this conversation right now, we're not even in the same part of the United States. This is kind of a case in point. You could be on a, on a production team with people who are in three or four different continents and all of you have to work together. 
And the person who's going to lead that team is not someone who is only good at only technical things, but someone who's actually really good at people skills. Yeah. That will make or break things. And I think we're, we're just going to become much more aware. We're going to be forced to become more aware of how important those kinds of human skills are. And we're going to become forced to become more aware that, that, that what we will need to solve these complicated problems in our society is, is more, is everything. So this is not against STEM, not saying we don't need technical. Of course we need technical. My point is, of course, we need everyone. <laughs> of course, we need all of these things across. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's why I said I think that the moment is actually in front of us. I do think that we have to change how we do things as academic institutions. Um, and, and I'm happy to say more about that. But, you know, I don't think we can just do what we were doing 70 years ago and say, yay, you know, the moment for humanities is in front of us. Let's just go back to the 1930s or 1950s. Education systems always evolve. Our institutions always evolve. We always have to adjust and change and, and refresh and, and envision anew, whatever our mission is. And I think if we we're committed to doing that as institutions, I think we will be very successful at, at meeting the demands that are on the horizon and that are already present with us. Yeah, your, your words um, echo... Um our first very first guest on this podcast was Scott Hartley and you know his book The Fuzzy and the Tech he talks about this very thing and he he talked about the importance of when you have a team like the ones that you're talking about that everyone is there as a representative as an expert in the field that they're trained in and you work together it's not bringing somebody in to to do something that they're not trained to do. It's not having humanities people, what the phrase he used was having humanities people become mediocre coders. That's not the answer to the question. The humanities folks and the social science folks and the STEM folks, they're all bringing their expertise and they're working together in a, in a, in a uh, collaboration of equality. So thank you for that. That, like I said, that really echoes the words of of other people who've been on the podcast as well. Thanks. Well, so what I love about what you talked about in, in your talk is that we, as um, an institution, I mean, we get this, the, the bad reputation or the bad label would be it's an ivory tower and it's, it's a tower that is so isolated that it, nobody, that we don't interact with the public. And you even make the case that we're not even interacting with the world um, that there's opportunities globally for um, for higher education. And so the only thing that I was thinking about with that that I was I was concerned about is just because humans are humans, <laughs> um, that i I worry that if we as an American culture might be guilty of imposing, cultural imperialism on other countries, um, this, this idea that, oh, well, we know best about how to learn. And so we'll come in and we'll teach you how to learn. Um, how do, how does, uh, uh, institutions of higher education sort of embrace humility where the, there's a mutual respect of cultures when you're going into other, other countries? Um, yeah, that's as, such a great question. Go ahead. Oh no. Yes. Yeah. That you, you keep going, you go. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Thanks for that, because it, it points to the, the importance of 
really being thoughtful and deliberate about elevating full participation and and rejecting uh, this hubris-ridden and very harmful model of structuring relationships where I'm, I'm the one who's going to deliver all the value based on everything I, I think, and you're just supposed to sit there and, you know, pay for consuming whatever I'm going to come up with. Um, so there, there are many ways to do this so that as education is expanding and as the, the population of people who are being served by institutions uh, becomes more equitable and more inclusive in its delivery, that we're not doing, not creating a problem that you just described, but we're taking a, a particular kind of cultural set of biases and packaging that as some kind of objective way that everyone needs to learn to do. And it's, it's really uh, something that a lot of cultural theorists decades ago called enculturation, uh, as opposed to cultural imperialism. It's, it's where you, you create and structure and you have to be deliberate opportunities for people who are uh, receiving services, in this case, who are, who are the students in some educational system, uh, that that population is also uh, participating as agents and shaping whatever the thing is that's getting delivered, and in particularly its norms. And a very practical way to do this, our, if, so the, the birth, rate in, birth rate in the United States has been negative since the 1970s. The only thing that has kept us going in terms of our, our talent for anything, like you name it, agriculture, healthcare, <laughs> education, is, the, is immigration, is the fact that people come to the United States from other parts of the world. So our, our universities and our companies have something in common that was not obvious to me years ago. And then once I, I was made to recognize it, I wondered how I'd missed it. And one is that our talent has always been global in education, higher ed, and companies, and our markets have always been global, okay? So if you look at, at most colleges and universities in the United States, you will see professionals, experts, from all over the world. The, the world is already at our universities in the United States. You can find people from Nigeria, from Iran, you know, from China, from South Africa, like name, name your country, you know, Mexico. And, and they have already brought with them a, a certain understanding of how to create things. Look at our companies and a lot of the technology that we call American technology is being created by people who are not from the United States. And we would be dishonest with ourselves if we say, oh, well, they got a PhD from uh, X university in the, in the United States. And that means that their ideas are United States ideas. No, these are human beings <laughs> who bring their whole selves. Like if I went to another country and I went to a school somewhere, that doesn't erase me. It, it's, it's me engaging with what that is. And so I think if we recognize that fact that that what we have is already in great measure a product of the world. Even if we like to say it's American, the truth is that it's already a product of the world. That that helps us to see some possible ways that, that any university in the U.S. Can, can serve more of the human population. Higher, if you're, and I'm just making up this example, you know, if you, um, if you are, 
creating more uh, service of education, just kind of make up a country. I'm going to say, I don't know, Ghana, I'm just going to name a country. There's a lot, there's lots of talent in Ghana to be instructors and teachers. You know, it's, you don't have to assume, well, we're just going to take Sylvester Johnson, who's from Mississippi in the United States, and he's going to be the expert in Ghana. There's lots of great talent in Ghana <laughs> that could be hired. And that's not the only way to do that. But, but I, but I love the question that you're asking because um, the, the global talent and market space are, are actually things that I'd, have been very powerful characteristics of higher ed institutions and of private companies. And, most, and I'm used to thinking about higher ed and private companies as very different kinds of things, and they are. But they also have some interesting things in common. And, and so as the, the need for education, for learning, for, for upskilling, for reskilling, for what people call workforce development, as that becomes greater and greater and greater, instead of fretting over the fact that we don't have enough students in the United States for our United States colleges and universities, I do think we need to, if we're going to continue to exist at these institutions, I think we need to say, but well, we should be in service to the whole world. And, and we already have lots of students from other countries coming to our universities here. They have to get through our immigration barriers, which are not becoming easier. They're becoming more difficult. And the faculty we hire, you know, we've already had, what, what if we, they're, they're already part of the world. What if we just take that and do it in a very thoughtful way globally? So, uh, so thanks for that question. Um, well, I was going to ask you something completely different than what we've talked about, but I want it to relate back. <laughs> and it, I didn't even share this question with Randy, um, so I'm going to—you're probably going to be surprised about this. Surprise um, me. Well, this time of year, so I'm always really excited to build my book list um, this time of year because it's, it's around Christmas, and I might actually have some time to read books. And I was looking over your bio, and you have a lot of expertise with uh, theology and religion. And I, I was pretty excited about some of your books. I'd, I'd love to check them out. And I, I, I want to see if you have a sort of a connection. I mean, if you have insights about how theology and religion connect to, you know, the future workforce, um, the future, the student, um, because sometimes we get very, I don't know if the right word is sort of sterile in our viewpoint of, um, you know, the student is just going to be, this employee and in, in that's all they're going to be. And yet you, we know that people go to churches, people um, have a sort of spiritual viewpoint um, th and they don't, they're not just this type of employee. Um, and so how do you see those sort of things intersect? Because I was just curious looking at your bio and, and what you've talked about previously and then this particular topic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the, one of the ways that I, I see those connections. And I'll, I'll name a couple of them. You know, one is uh, there. I'm writing a book now that is uh, tentatively titled Robots Have Souls. And it's, it's basically asking a question of the title is meant to be very playful. And the, the question is really about what, what can things do? And what are people, you know, are, are people things? Okay, so, you know, grammatically in English, we have uh, uh, that for things and who for people. You know, this idea of personhood is that things are not people and that people are not things. And, and so 
the, the history of theological formations across many different traditions of Islam, Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Hinduism, um, Ju Judaism, uh, Orisha traditions, traditions of Orisha devotion, so African indigenous religions, Native American indigenous religions. There, there's so many different ways of coming at that. There's not a single answer to that kind of question. And, and I think that the advent of the informational machine technologies, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, algorithmic systems, are creating, they're recreating an, a, an, a new instance of a classic question. And I'm, and I'm sure you've seen or had heard this come up because uh, when ChatGPT and other large language models like BARD uh, began to hit the commercial space, uh, one of the things that many experts begin to say is, well, machines don't actually know anything. You know, these AI systems don't know anything. They're not, they're not conscious. I don't know if you remember the Google uh, researcher who was fired by Google because he kept claiming that one of Google's algorithms was actually conscious and sentient. And Google kept saying that don't go around telling people this, it's just software, you know, it's just doing that. But, but the question is, is not gonna go away. It's in these new forms, it's actually gonna become more, more urgent as humans get combined with machine systems. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you one hypothetical example that's based on, on actual research. Uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has funded the uh, the development of brain brain implants. It's a chip that can be implanted into the brain in order to treat people who have suffered traumatic brain injury, particularly U.S. soldiers. And so already you could, and there are early forms of these have already been implanted into people to allow them to, for example, move an arm or a leg. Uh, that they had lost movement of due to traumatic brain injury. So if, and, and they're experimenting with the ability to transfer memories to these chips and thoughts to these chips, okay? So that people can have restored speech capacity. If they've, if they've lost, had memory loss, uh, it can be restored. So, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, if I were to get a brain chip that controlled part of the neural processing that helped me to experience what we may call love or emotion. Would, would anyone question my humanity? Would they say, well, Sylvester's brain, you know, it's kind of a part chip. Uh, he's not really capable of love. So he shouldn't be allowed to have a family or to adopt any kids or anything like that. So that's one question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's just a very practical <laughs> way that something that can at first seem far-fetched that people have been talking about for thousands of years, what can things do? And are and are people things? And if we're not, you know, can can a thing experience love or emotion? Is is actually going to generate some real legal political consequences? And then the other thing I would say about the history of of these religious theological systems is that uh, so I I love to have students read Aristotle's work, and uh, he wrote lots of different kinds of things. And that's sort of my point, you know, some in political, what we would call political theory, others in what things that we would call biology, <laughs> other things we would call philosophy. And one of his most fascinating texts is uh, referred to in its Latin title, De Anima, that he wrote, of course, uh, uh, the 
entitled the translated the soul but he wrote uh Perry suitcase suitcase is uh the greek for uh suke which is the the translated the soul but in this work he was trying to explain what makes things alive and if you look at all the things that he wrote about or others in that tradition they and we hire if we were to hire aristotle to work at our universities today i'll put it this way we would never be able to decide in which college or department to put him. <laughs> we wouldn't know if he belonged in humanities or engineering or biology or chemistry or physics. And he would look at us and say, why are you trying to split me up? You know, why do you have knowledge divided into all these different buildings and parts of <laughs> And And I, I think that is actually useful to to think with and say, well, for thousands of years, people had a, a very uh, holistic way of coming at problems and trying to explain them. And and I, I love having students to read these texts so that they can just appreciate the fact that we have really chopped up knowledge today. We've divided it up. And I think there's something useful about making space to include a more uh, synthetic, in, a, in terms of synthesis, a more, more synthetic way or comprehensive or transdisciplinary way of, of engaging with really big questions that people are actually fascinated by and interested in. So those are, those are two ways that I see the connections between these things. That's great. I, I'm I'm so glad I asked that question because <laughs> I was a little worried. I, I was worried that you were just say, "Oh, well, it's completely separate disciplines in my world." <laughs> I don't let them join. No, I, I think it really enhanced. I mean, what you're saying about how um, uh, this concept of comprehensive um, industry, comprehensive student, comprehensive higher education. I mean, that yeah. I always kind of think it's funny that you know the more technology that we create, the more people kind of go, oh, well, like we're moving away from um, religion or, or theological systems. And then the first thing that people always say is we're playing God. Um, and I'm like, so what is this concept of, of God that you're talking about? <laughs> um, and why is, is God go come into this conversation? Uh, it, so all good, all good. <laughs> yeah, no, those are fascinating histories. I, I think that uh, you know, the, the other thing about studying religion, given its powerful effect on the world, as you as you just pointed out, people don't care less about religion today. They're, they're whole human beings who care about many different kinds of things. And that certainly includes religion and, and it's you know, more the, the theological, philosophical traditions around that. And it's more cultural aspects. It I, I think we need to have more literacy and public understanding of religion. And because these are very complicated, complex global systems that, that have a huge impact on the world and, and they are part of how people live in the world. And it's, it's like studying other things. You know, it's like saying, well, I don't want to know anything about politics. <laughs> well, if you ignore the fact that politics actually plays a role in the world, it actually, it actually affects how people think and what they do and how their institutions work. Uh, you don't have to agree with someone else's politics, but you should at least understand that it is it is a real force in the world that is is something people should know about and they should understand because it it helps us to 
be able to interpret human behavior and help us to, to I think having empathy for people when you when you know more about how the world works and how people approach it. Uh, and it's it's like other things in that sense. And then as as we were just talking about, there's some really fascinating classic questions that are embedded in these traditions that are they're classic because they're not going to go away. You know, they're still going to be with us. And it's it's really for me, it's fun to think through and to talk about. Sylvester, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for continuing uh, some of the conversations that we've been having over the past couple of months. And we've really appreciated having you here in all of the visits that you've made. And Jim and I enjoyed talking to you today. So um, giving us a lot to think about, and that's always a good thing. And um, giving us a lot to shoot for as we try to fulfill our, our, our institution's mission, which is, um, you know, a challenge and a challenge that, you know, we enjoy, you know, trying to help along, you know, mm -hmm. you know, we, I told you earlier, I'm giving a final after this. I mean, it's the interaction with the students, you know, that is the most important because of all the things we're talking about today, because of all the potential for the future that exists for, for the people that we come in contact with and the people that we teach. And we appreciate um, you giving us more to think about when it comes to that. So um, thanks for joining us on this uh, version of the Being Human UT podcast. Um, I'm Randy Jasmine, and for my partner, Jim Hendigas, we'll say, see you next time. This has been the Being Human UT podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hendigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UT podcast.